0: In practically every civilized society in all of recorded history, there exists the concept of good versus evil. The forces of good, of course, are usually personified by the people who are actually writing that history, or sometimes by their religious deities who act as their champions. But for something to be categorized as good, there must also be its opposite number for comparison, the proverbial flip side of the coin, if you will. In terms of legends and folklore, this concept of evil is usually given the form of monsters or demons. And whereas in many legends the ultimate goal of these creatures of darkness may simply be to snuff out the good folk, there also exists another more insidious goal. That being for the creature to actually seize control of an innocent person and to remake them in their own horrific image. In 2013, the Roman Catholic Church announced that they were training a new army of specially trained priests to combat what they felt was a growing problem in the world. According to the church, with the advent of the internet and social media, it had become much easier for people to begin dabbling with dark forces they couldn't hope to control or understand. In order to battle this growing problem, this new class of priests would need to be trained in an ancient ritual known as the Ritual Romanum. A specialized ritual designed to drive out demons that could worm their way inside an innocent person's body. A ritual we all know much better as exorcism. Virtually every religion and culture around the world has some concept of demonic possession. And as different cultures began to acknowledge that possession was a very real problem for them, so did there come about a need for certain individuals specially trained to drive those demons out. The earliest known examples of exorcism dates back thousands of years ago to ancient Mesopotamia where it was believed that all illness was the cause of evil spirits attaching themselves to the victim's body. Ancient Assyrian tablets have been uncovered that contain special incantations and prayers to the gods as well as those that directly challenge the evil spirits. Ancient Babylonian priests were known to perform a particular ritual it was capped off by destroying a clay or wax effigy of the demon in order to drive it out. In the Hindu religion, some of the ancient texts, known as Vedas, which were composed around 1000 BC, talk about evil spirits that invade the living body and interfere with the work of the Hindu gods. Stories dating back to ancient Persia around 600 BC detail exorcisms using prayer and holy water that were performed by the religious leader Zoroaster, who, incidentally, is thought to be the first magician, as well as the founder of the religion Zoroastrianism. Of course, there has probably been no more well-known exorcist in history than Jesus Christ. Various Christian texts contain many stories of Jesus performing exorcisms. In one story, Jesus encountered a person possessed by evil spirits that had driven him stark, raving mad. Jesus commanded the evil spirits to leave the man's body. Those spirits jumped ship and entered a herd of pigs, which ran over a nearby cliff and drowned in the river below. One thing of note we should take from this story is the correlation between madness and possession. By the Middle Ages, fear and superstition would often lead people to believe the mentally ill were possessed by demons. As a result, treatment for the mentally ill was often left up to the local clergy to try to drive the demons out through any means necessary often resorting to barbaric torture to do so. It was widely believed that if you caused the possessed person's body enough pain, it could drive out the evil entity dwelling within. If the person died as a result of that torture, well, at least their soul was saved from the devil's influence. Over the years, the Catholic Church would refine their methods of exorcism, although it's still largely based on the original ritual Romanum, which was issued in 1614 at the behest of Pope Paul V. For the most part, the Catholic exorcism ritual would remain a secretive practice, one that was seldom performed and would remain largely out of the public's eye until 1973, when a major Hollywood motion picture changed all that. On December 26, 1973, director William Friedkin released the film The Exorcist. The film about a young girl possessed by a demon became a major box office hit and would go on to spawn a new wave of fear of the devil that spread like wildfire across the globe. Prior to the film's release, the practice of exorcism had largely fallen out of favor with the Catholic Church. But with this resurgent fear of the devil that came about after the release of movies like The Exorcist, The Omen, and Rosemary's Baby, the need for exorcists began to grow rapidly. Religious leaders like Billy Graham began sermonizing about the demons all around us. Stories began springing up in the news about satanic cults insinuating themselves into every aspect of society. This new satanic panic would reach a fever pitch throughout the 1970s and early 1980s. Everything from horror movies to heavy metal music to Dungeons and Dragons and Ouija boards were all being blamed for being gateways to allow demons to infest innocent children. In fact... If you look through history, many stories of exorcisms center around the young. If you choose to believe all the legends, innocent children were the most precious gift of all to the devil. But whether you believe in demonic possession or not, the fact is, exorcists really do exist. And the stories of those they have worked to save are both tragic and terrifying. I'm Nate Hale, and so am I, and this is The Conspirators. In 1906, a 16-year-old girl from South Africa named Clara Germana Sela made a chilling confession to a priest at the Catholic mission school where she lived. She told Father Erasmus Horner that she had made a terrible mistake. You see, Clara claimed that she had made a pact with the devil and that she desperately needed help. Over the next few weeks, the girl began exhibiting strange and often violent behavior that terrorized the nuns who ran the school. She tore her clothes, broke her bedposts, began growling like an animal and would often be observed speaking to invisible beings. When a priest sprinkled holy water on Clara, it burned her skin and she somehow seemed to know every time they substituted normal tap water, which only made her laugh. The girl reacted angrily whenever she was in the presence of any holy objects like a crucifix or a rosary. Somehow she knew these objects were near even when they were hidden from view. When a pair of nuns accused her of faking her condition, Clara lashed out with seemingly superhuman strength. She slammed one of the nuns into a corner, and threw the other one clear across the room, before jumping on her and beating her mercilessly. After that, mysterious fires began to appear in Clara's presence. Once she entered the school's kitchen, where a small coal fire was smoldering. But when she got close to the stove, a huge burst of flame leaped into the air behind her. On another occasion, Clara had just gotten into bed in the dormitory she shared with twenty other girls, when flames erupted directly beneath her bed frame. All the girls managed to get out of the building safely, but the flames only went out after one of the sisters sprinkled them with holy water. At night, students and faculty would often hear what sounded like hoofbeats pounding on the roof and doors of the school. Yet despite all the strange phenomena that kept occurring around Clara, there were those among the staff that still insisted the girl had to be perpetrating some sort of elaborate hoax. That sort of skepticism all came to an abrupt halt when Clara was observed by Father Horner and others doing things that defied any possibility of trickery. On more than one occasion, Clara was seen running straight up a wall two yards high. Father Horner wrote in his diary that he personally witnessed the girl levitating as much as four or five feet in the air. The only thing that could bring her back down to earth was dousing her in holy water. Finally, in September of 1906... Father Horner was given approval by the local bishop to perform an exorcism on the girl. It was during these rituals that Father Horner and Father Mansuet, who was assisting him, demanded to know the demon's name. Clara responded in a voice that was very different from her normal way of speaking. She told them at different times that her name was Yamina, or Balak, or Malak. When the priests pressed her to give them a single name, Clara responded by saying only the important ones have names, not those who are small and insignificant, and that the entity inside Clara was too insignificant to have a name. The exorcism rituals went on for months, until finally in April 1907, Father Horner and the other priests assisting him declared victory over the being inhabiting Clara. The girl went on to live a normal life, but it proved to be a short-lived one when she died just five years later during a tuberculosis outbreak. She was only 23 years old at the time. If you were to ask most doctors and mental health specialists today, they'd tell you that people like Clara, who claim to be possessed, are more likely suffering from a common mental illness such as schizophrenia or epilepsy. And when you consider the symptoms of such illnesses, it's difficult to dispute that this might be the root cause of the problem. A person suffering from epilepsy, for example, can experience extreme muscular rigidity, foaming of the mouth, and sharp, quick, back-and-forth head movements. Their faces may contort, and they might produce strange guttural noises caused by muscle spasms at the back of the throat. Some people even experience bizarre hallucinations or hear voices right before suffering a seizure. But according to the Catholic Church, people suffering from demonic possession exhibit symptoms that differ in several key ways from a standard epileptic seizure. For one thing, they're longer. Whereas an epileptic fit will typically last only a few minutes, a possessed individual can exhibit strange behavior that goes on for hours or even days at a time. The Church has a whole checklist of symptoms they look for when deciding if a person is legitimately possessed or not. According to the church, a person possessed by a demon will often speak in strange voices, or even unfamiliar languages. Psychiatrists will claim that the person speaking this way is just reciting gibberish that the priests are misinterpreting as foreign languages. Many psychiatrists have seen patients in the grip of what would have been described in less modern times as hysteria. The term hysteria is actually derived from the Greek word for womb which should provide you with some clue why hysteria was something doctors almost exclusively diagnosed in women. People exhibiting such behavior would fall right in line with the church's concept of demonic possession. Sometimes a patient's limbs would twist and contort in seemingly impossible, pretzel-like fashions. And the person's entire body would sometimes twist upward in what is referred to as a hysterical arch. It's even been known for mysterious lesions and welts to appear on the victim's skin. The church claims it first looks for psychological causes of the individual's troubles before recommending an actual exorcism. But when other signs like an aversion to religious artifacts or even supernatural phenomena like poltergeist activity or levitation occur, it may then be determined whether or not it's time to call in an exorcist. The actual exorcism ritual itself is a sort of battle royale between the priest and the evil spirit. If you've ever seen the film The Exorcist, if you ignore the little possessed girl spitting up pea soup and twisting her head around, the rituals performed by Max von Sydow's character are fairly accurate to what a real exorcist does. According to the Church, the exorcism ritual can be dangerous, too. It's possible for an exorcist to fail, and they could even be killed. The Catholic Church claims that several exorcists have died prematurely over the centuries, and more than a few have been driven insane. One common misconception about exorcism is that we tend to think of it as a ritual to drive a demon out of the body, whereas it's really more of an attempt to bind the creature under a spiritual oath that compels it to fall under the exorcist's command. In fact, the term exorcism is derived from the Greek words ek and horchizo, which means I cause someone to swear an oath. According to the Catholic Church, the greatest danger an exorcist may face is becoming possessed by the demon himself. This is why only a select few priests are chosen to be exorcists. They are an elite bunch who are determined to be as free from sin as possible, and who feel no secret need for punishment. Only a priest who is 100% convinced that they are right with God can become an exorcist. Otherwise, they may leave themselves open to falling victim to the dark spirits they are combating. Author William Peter Blatty got the idea for the novel The Exorcist after reading several newspaper articles from 1949 that detailed some of what went on during a series of exorcisms that were performed on a young boy in Maryland. The boy, who the church dubbed Robbie Doe in order to hide his true identity, was born in Cottage City, Maryland in 1935 to a Catholic father and a Lutheran mother. His family was quite devout in their faith, and some people who have looked at the case often point to the parents' religious beliefs causing the false belief that the boy was possessed. When Robbie was 14, he was introduced to using a Ouija board by a favorite aunt who was heavily into spiritualism. It was through this board that some people believe Robbie first made contact with an entity he believed was that of the ghost of his Aunt Tilly, shortly after her death. At first, things began innocently enough. Robbie would have what would appear to be fairly normal conversations with his aunt through the board. Normal, that is, except for the fact that his aunt was dead, of course. But over time, things took a more sinister tone when Robbie's family began hearing strange voices and the sounds of furniture being moved echoing through their home. Some nights, Robbie's bed would shake uncontrollably while he was lying in it fast asleep. When he was at school, the desk Robbie sat in would sometimes jerk across the floor and move itself into the aisle, although Robbie swore to his teachers that he wasn't the one doing it. Books would sometimes fly off bookshelves in Robbie's presence. Once, the kitchen table in his home flipped completely over. Another time, Robbie was sitting in his living room with his family when the overstuffed armchair he was sitting in flipped backwards with him in it. Robbie's father and uncle tried to replicate what had just happened, but even working together, the two large men were unable to flip the chair over. Then, while this was going on, one of Robbie's aunts pointed to a vase sitting on an end table that lifted up into the air and floated there for a minute before shooting across the room and smashing into a wall. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, And of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On yet another occasion, Robbie's family went to visit some friends who lived about 40 miles away. But when Robbie sat down in a rocking chair, he cried out in panic. All the adults were shocked when they turned and saw the chair spinning rapidly around in circles with Robbie in it. Witnesses claimed the boy's feet were off the ground and there was no way he could be doing it on his own. The desperate family called in two Lutheran ministers and a rabbi to come in and bless the house. The rabbi later claimed that Robbie began shouting at him in a mix of Hebrew and ancient Aramaic, two languages Robbie didn't know. Some reports say that a number of physicians and psychiatrists examined Robbie around this time and were unable to find anything physically or mentally wrong with the boy. Then on February 26, 1949, Robbie began exhibiting physical symptoms in the form of strange claw marks that materialized on his body. Witnesses claimed that Robbie's hands were visible each time these claw marks occurred, and he couldn't be doing it to himself. Once, the name Lewis even appeared scratched across his ribcage. Believing the entity must be haunting their home, the family took Robbie and fled to St. Louis, Missouri, hoping to leave the evil spirit behind. But when the strange activity followed them to St. Louis, the family finally enlisted the aid of a Roman Catholic priest named Father Bishop, who was teaching at St. Louis University. When Father Bishop walked into the bedroom where Robbie was staying, the bed Robbie was lying on began to shake violently. When Father Bishop sprinkled some holy water on the boy, Robbie began to contort and complain about severe stomach pains. His mother then pulled back the covers to reveal a fresh zigzag pattern of scratches across his abdomen. A couple days later, Father Bishop returned with Father Bodern from St. Francis Xavier College Church. Robbie was asleep when they arrived, yet when they entered the room, a bottle of holy water flew across the room as if it had been thrown by unseen hands. Minutes later, a heavy bookcase seemingly moved by itself across the room and wedged itself up against the door. Of course, it's certainly possible that all the strange events that occurred could have been performed by Robbie himself, although it does stretch credibility a bit that the thin, 95-pound boy could have moved the heavy wooden bookcase by himself completely unobserved. A few days later, Father Bishop and Father Bodern presented all their evidence to the St. Louis Archbishop, who ultimately granted permission for the priests to carry out an exorcism, during which Robbie reacted violently, lashing out and screaming profanities at them. Witnesses swore that while the boy lay in bed with the priest praying over him, the bed he was lying in would often jerk around and lift up off the floor. As the boy thrashed and churned on the bed, he would sometimes break into a terribly racist imitation of a black person and sing old spirituals like Swanee River. A priest named Father O'Hara, who personally witnessed the exorcism, swore at one point that an unseen force actually yanked the ritual book out of Father Bodern's hands and shredded it into confetti. After a week, the boy's parents agreed to take him to the psychiatric ward at Alexian Brothers Hospital, where the priest continued the exorcism. This, according to most accounts, is where the real battle for the boy's soul took place. Witnesses claim the exorcism went on for weeks while the boy thrashed and raged on under the constant prayers uttered by the priests. In response to their litany of prayers, it is said that Robbie would shout Latin phrases back at them, or laugh and tell them that he was the devil, and the devil could not be defeated. But if the stories are to be believed, the exorcism did ultimately result in the demon's defeat. Robbie reportedly woke after the final ritual was performed, and told of a dream he had of a shining knight who confronted a monstrous demon in a cave and defeated it. He also claimed to have little or no memory of anything else from the preceding weeks. Some witnesses even claimed that moments after the boy awoke, after the final exorcism ritual, a massive noise like a small cannon going off shook the walls of the hospital. The story of Robbie Doe was widely reported on in many newspapers. Some of those articles were read by author William Peter Blatty, who kept the basic framework of the story and expanded on it, changing the child victim to a little girl named Reagan McNeil in his novel of The Exorcist. Of course, there has been plenty of skepticism surrounding this story and lots of differing versions of events. There are those who have looked into the story who say that Robbie was nothing more than a sullen loner looking to get some attention by pretending to be possessed. It is true that if you look at some of the various accounts of the story, many of the details do change from each telling, including the name given to the young man. Some accounts call him Robbie, others say Ronnie, or even Roland Doe. In a couple of versions of events, Robbie, as I'll keep calling him, lashed out and savagely cut one of the exorcists with a broken bedspring. But this event, like a lot of the other details, has been disputed. So it's completely fair to look at the more fantastic anecdotes with a skeptical eye. I will say this, though. If Robbie really did fake the whole thing, then he put himself through months of suffering through the long and terrible ordeal of an actual exorcism, in order to keep his elaborate hoax going. Father Bodern remained convinced until the end of his life that he really had been in battle with a demonic force. And at least in this case, the story has a happy ending because Robbie Doe grew up and went on to live a relatively normal and possession-free life. But that's not how all such exorcism stories have turned out. There is one story in particular from Germany in the 1970s that ended in much more tragic results. On September 21, 1952, a girl named Annalise Mckell was born in the town of Klingenberg, Bavaria. Her parents were devout Catholics who raised their children in the ways of the church. Annalise's life took a dramatic turn for the worse one day in 1968, when her terrified sisters found Annalise collapsed and twitching on the floor in the throes of a major seizure. She was rushed to the hospital where a neurologist diagnosed her with an acute case of epilepsy. Along with her seizures, Annalise also began experiencing horrific visions of demonic entities that surrounded her. For a few years she kept these visions to herself. It wasn't until September of 1973 after she began attending the University of Würzburg to study education that she finally broke down and told her parents and her doctors about the visions. By then, she would also begun hearing voices as well. Terrifying voices that commanded her to do things, or else she'd be dragged to hell. The doctors proved unable to help Annalise. They prescribed antipsychotic medication, but nothing seemed to chase away the visions and the voices. After several years of fruitless medical treatment, both Annalise and her parents began to suspect that the girl was a victim of demonic possession. In the summer of 1973, Annalise's parents began visiting various members of the clergy, looking for someone to perform an exorcism on their daughter. But time after time, their requests were denied, and instead the church strongly suggested that Annalise seek psychiatric help. It wasn't until the following year when a local parish priest, Pastor Ernst Alt requested permission from the local bishop to perform an exorcism on the girl. The request was initially denied, and the bishop even went so far as to suggest Annalise should try living an even more religious lifestyle in order to drive out her personal demons. But Annalise's condition worsened. She began lashing out at everyone around her. She'd often fly into an uncontrollable rage in which she'd swear, hit, or bite at anyone she encountered. She stopped eating because she claimed the demons wouldn't allow it. She began sleeping on the stone floor of her basement, where she ate the spiders and flies she found, and even consumed pieces of coal, and began drinking her own urine. She smashed every religious artifact in her house, destroying every crucifix, religious painting, and rosary she could get her hands on. Around this time, Annalise began mutilating herself as well, cutting her arms and shredding her clothes. Eventually, the family was able to convince the bishop to allow the exorcism to go on. The bishop, wanting to keep word about the ritual from going public, assigned Father Ernst Ault and Father Arnold Renz to perform the exorcism. Over the next eleven months, all medical treatment of Annalise ceased, and the rites of exorcism began in earnest. Each session went on for an hour each day, and for a time it seemed to work to bring some semblance of normalcy to Annalise's life. She even managed to return to church and went back to school. But as time went on, the rituals appeared to become less and less effective, and her symptoms began to reappear in force. The exorcisms became more intense over the weeks and months that followed. Her knees actually ruptured from the more than 600 genuflections she performed during these rituals. She stopped eating, and her extreme weight loss only contributed further to her rapidly deteriorating condition. During this time, Annalise's parents and the priests made over 40 audio recordings of the rituals in order to preserve the details. The last exorcism occurred on June 30th, 1976. By now, Annalise was skeletally thin. She had contracted pneumonia and was running a dangerously high fever. She was no longer physically capable of performing the ritual genuflections herself. Her parents had to hold her upright as she begged for absolution. Her last words were, Mama, I'm afraid, before she collapsed and died at the age of 23. The autopsy that followed listed her weight at just 68 pounds. The cause of death was listed as a combination of malnutrition and dehydration. It took two years of investigation before the authorities arrested Annalise's parents and the two exorcists, fathers Alt and Renz. All of them were charged with negligent homicide for refusing medical treatment for Annalise. The trial began on March 30th, 1978. Prosecutors brought in several doctors and psychiatrists to testify that Annalise was the unfortunate victim of a combination of mental illness and religious mania. Prosecution experts directly blamed the film The Exorcist as playing a contributing role in Annalise's death. They said that it was the film's influence along with the combination of her temporal lobe epilepsy and her parents' extreme religious beliefs that brought about her death. The defense countered that Annalise had been legitimately possessed and they'd done everything they could to save her. They played the more than 40 audio recordings of Annalise's exorcisms to the jury to prove that the girl really was in the throes of a demonic possession. The tapes contained numerous instances where Annalise would scream wildly or speak in several different voices. Father Renz and Father Alt were both thoroughly convinced that Annalise really had been demonically possessed that they'd done everything they could to save her. Although they weren't fully swayed, the evidence presented was enough to get some leniency from the jury. They ultimately found the accused guilty of negligent manslaughter, but the defendants were only given a six-month suspended sentence. The case of Annalise McKell's tragic death was adapted by Hollywood screenwriters into a fictionalized version of events set in the United States called The Exorcism of Emily Rose. For the church, the death of Annalise Mikkel was a public relations nightmare. It was exactly the sort of terrible outcome they'd long been dreading. They knew the exorcism ritual came with risks, but this was the first case in a long time that resulted in an actual death. After the convictions of the two priests, the German bishop issued a new rule stating that no exorcism would be performed after that point unless a doctor was present. After the trial, Annalise's parents asked the authorities' permission to exhume the remains of their daughter. The official reason given was because Annalise had been buried in such haste that she had been buried in a cheap coffin. On February 25, 1978, almost two years after the initial burial, Annalise McKell's remains were dug up and placed in a new oak coffin lined with tin. People who believe that Annalise had been possessed by the devil claimed that her body had not decomposed as much as it should have for the time it was below ground. Although medical experts dispute this claim, and say the remains decomposed normally. But neither Fathers Alt nor Wrens were allowed to view the remains, which some people believe is evidence of a cover-up by the church. In 2013, yet another strange incident occurred when a fire broke out in the McKell home. Authorities say the fire was a result of a simple case of arson, although others believe it was the forces of darkness still lingering around. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I wanted to let you know about a couple of other podcasts you might want to check out. Last week, I had the opportunity to attend the History Dweebs DweebCon 2017 in Cincinnati, along with Nina Instead of Already Gone and David and Chelsea from Based on a True Crime. If you listen to the episode, you'll even get to hear a mini-interview with yours truly, conducted by the Dweeb's own Chuck. I also wanted to let you know that I'm on the latest episode of Is This Adulting? I had a fantastic time chatting with Chris and Stephen about Halloween, horror movies, and what scares us. If you're not listening to Is This Adulting, you should really check it out. Chris and Steven are two of the nicest guys and a load of fun to listen to. If you're interested in reading more about the exorcism of Robbie Doe, I recommend the book The Devil Came to St. Louis by Troy Taylor. It's a fun read and a fairly even-handed account of the true events that inspired The Exorcist. It's also a good, scary story to read for the Halloween season. I want to give a shout-out to my latest Patreon supporter, MDB. Thanks so much for your generous support. Just a reminder, the patrons to the show can get access to all sorts of goodies like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and of course our patron-exclusive minisodes. I'll have a special Halloween-themed minisode out soon. If you're interested in helping support the show, I'll put a link to my Patreon page in the show notes below. Another easy way you can support the show is to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Each of your reviews and subscriptions really helps spread the good word about us. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, not to worry, we're also on Stitcher the Google Play Store and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon.